Thank you, everyone, for joining us on the MBIT Podcast. In today's episode, we have a very special guest, Brian Feroldi from The Motley Fool and author of the book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up?, which is an Amazon bestseller in investing. A quick disclaimer before we begin, the podcast is not financial or investment advice. All opinions expressed are our own, and investing is risky. Always do your own due diligence. So, Brian, thank you for taking the time to hop on the pod. How's your morning going so far? Really good, Seamus. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate your time today. Starting with some background here about you and what got you interested in personal finance and investing. Sure. Uh, so I have I, I was born a natural saver. Like for for whatever reason, I've just ho- always had an affinity uh, for saving money. I remember growing up as a kid, I had a passbook account, like many people uh, did back in the day, where you'd take your money to the bank and they would literally print off a little, uh, you know, your your account balance. And um, I remember seeing when I whenever I did that, that there'd be a thing called interest next to it. And I would get like, you know, like $5 or something like that. That's back when uh, bank accounts paid like 5% uh, interest. And I remember looking at that and be like, wow, that's like magic money, right? I didn't have to do anything. And I, I got this money from the bank. How cool is that? And I also remember thinking at the time, well, if I could only multiply that by like 10 or 100x, like that would be all the money that I needed uh, to do that uh, in life. But Beyond a simple passbook uh, account, I didn't have any. Uh, I, I didn't have any interest in investing or anything like that. It was all foreign uh, topics uh, to, to me. But as I said, I was a natural a saver. Uh, when I graduated from college in 2004, um, I started to. I got a. I got a job at a, a startup, and I started to earn money that could cover my expenses and had a few hundred dollars left over each month for which I could uh, start investing. And at the time, my dad, uh, as a graduation gift, handed me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, which is a book that I just devoured in a matter of like days. And while I don't fully agree with everything that's written in that book uh, today, that book unlocked a my uh, my interest uh, in personal finance, in money, uh, and investing. And it was just a topic that just like immediately grasped me and immediately resonated uh, with me. And I just became very into learning everything that I could about how money works, how personal finances work, how to become how to build wealth, how to become rich uh, in one generation, uh, et cetera. And basically ever since then, I've been on a never-ending journey to kind of educate myself, to enhance my financial uh, knowledge, and just study everything that I can about money, investing, and the category of uh, of investing that uh, appeals to me uh, the most is uh, is the stock market. Uh, so that's where I now spend the majority of my my time thinking about um, and and putting my capital into. And fast forwarding today, you're a contributor over at The Motley Fool, and you've grown your Twitter account to a substantial following talking about money and personal finance. What was your journey getting to those stages? Sure. So uh, I knew nothing about stocks or investing when I first started, and it was just through uh, trial and error, making mistakes in the beginning and reading everything that I could that I slowly learned how to invest uh, invest better. Uh, if you're into stocks investing at, at all, and you're doing the research that I was doing, you will undoubtedly come across the Motley Fools. They are there. I've read their excellent. They have a lot of books that are they're excellent. Uh, nowadays, they have podcasts that are excellent. Uh, but back uh, back in like the, the mid 2000s, I was reading articles online that I found about stocks investing, and the Motley Fool produced a plethora of of free ones. 
Eventually, I got my hands on a, a premium subscription through a friend that I know, and he handed. Uh, I got to to read it, and when I read it, I was like, "Oh my god, these guys do so much more research on businesses and investing than I could possibly do." And I was like, my jaw hit the floor, and I was like, "How do they know all this stuff? Where do they find out all this information about a, a company and thinking uh, thinking through it?" Uh, so that led me to become a paying member uh, myself, and I started to learn a lot just by reading the information that they were producing about our recommendations. And one of the wonderful things about The Motley Fool is they have this thriving uh, discussion boards behind uh, the scenes. So once you become a paying member, they give all their members access to uh, talk about and share information on companies and investing uh, philosophies. And I have just spent thousands of hours of my life on those discussion boards, learning from, connecting with, and talking to other people that are just as interested in investing uh, as, as I am. And because I was posting and contributing so much to the discussion boards, uh, that gradually helped me build up a relationship with the people that work uh, at The Motley Fool. I got to visit the headquarters uh, several times. And then in 2015, um, I, I was afforded the opportunity to become a full-time writer uh, for them. And that was just how I was spending all of my free time. Like It was like the thing that like, I'm like really into and passionate about. So it was just a, such a perfect fit uh, for me. Uh, so that was seven years ago that I started to, uh, to write for them. My relationship with them has evolved over time. I gradually went from writing the free articles for them uh, to writing the kind of behind the paywall stuff. And then I got to invited to podcasts and live streams and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but about two years ago, I started on the uh, the journey to become uh, an author. I, I'm not myself like ever someone that would have said, "Oh, I'm gonna write a book some like day." Like that was never on my like to do list as a human. Uh, however, as I learned more about how the market and how the stock market works, I just see this enormous education gap in society where people that are that are doing the right thing with their money, they're putting it into the market or they're investing slowly. I just know from talking to people in my day to day life that most people have no clue how the stock market works. Terms like Dow Jones Industrial Average, S&P 500, uh, PE ratio, they're just completely foreign terms to so many, uh, many people. And when I discovered those terms myself, it just opened up a world uh, to me. And I finally understood, oh, this is why rich people are always putting their money into the stock market. And those very simple, basic things, I think um, uh, books have historically done a very poor job of explaining. Again, I was someone that read like every book that I can get my hand on about the market. And I just wondered for years, why isn't there just a super simple book that explains the very basic of how a stock market market works in a easy to digest uh, uh, format. So about two years ago, um, after talking with a couple of friends of mine, specifically Morgan Housel and Brian Stoffel, they're like, why don't you write the book? Um, so I, I, again, I never fancied myself as an author, but two years ago, I started to uh, write the book. And as I was writing it, uh, I was simultaneously putting time into uh, social media in order to like you know build up a potential audience for me to uh, to market uh, the book to. So that all started two years ago, and uh, one week ago uh, the uh, the book officially launched. So that's uh, that's that story. Yeah, you mentioned for more people to be educated on personal finance. When I take a look back in history, personal finance and investing mainly was not really democratized as much. There were a lot of restrictions put in place a couple decades ago where it was really hard for the average person 
to start investing. And whether you like Robinhood or not, I think they're one of the key platforms that actually started that democratization where you could easily uh, trade stocks without a bunch of fees and requirements. So given that, what are your thoughts on investing now? Yeah. So yeah, to, to your point, when, when you talk to uh, most people about how they invest their money or something like that, they typically do so, uh, one, through their employer. So with a 401k uh, at work, or when I was even writing my book, I was, I was testing chapters on my friends and I asked all of them, how did you, what do you do with your money? Like, what, what's your investing strategy? And uh, in so many instances, I heard back from them, oh, we have a guy. Like we have a person that handles that for us. And I was like, oh, okay. How did you how did you meet this person? How did you get in contact with them? And it was always like, oh, my dad, my my mom knows this person, or they manage my family's money, or oh, they came to my work one day and they like set everything uh, up. So a lot of uh, a lot of people that I know are personally depending on somebody else to do the investing for them, to do the worrying uh, for them. And uh, just on that front, I was like, okay, well. That's great. I'm great that you're investing. Do you, how, how does that person get paid? Every time I ask that question, blank stare. Right. So many people have no clue how their financial advisor gets gets paid. It's like never been discussed before. And I'm like, doesn't that sound weird? Doesn't that sound weird that you are giving this person your money and they're investing and they're doing it for 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 free? Like that doesn't make any uh, sense. So that's one of the things that I suggest people do when they're working with a financial advisor. Just ask them how do you how do you get paid? They deserve to get paid. Like they deserve to get paid. They are doing a service uh, for you. But I don't like that that information is often hidden uh, from um, from people's views. But uh, the good thing about uh, today is it's never been easier for people to uh, save their money, to invest their money, and to for them to be their own financial advisor. There are wonderful books out there. There are podcasts out there. Uh, there are automation tools. There are apps. There are so many tools at our um, disposal that we can use to save money the right way, invest money the right way, and really simplify everything about personal uh, a finance. But having having said all that, a lot of the traditional ways that people would save and invest are still there, and um, uh, that the, the, there are pluses and minuses to the traditional way that uh, that things were uh, done. But overall, people that are just getting started today have never had it better in history. For sure, and you've talked a lot about long term investing and how you stick with it in the long term and how you can make money. Now, I completely agree with you. Long term investing is the way to go, in my opinion. However, there have been international instances in which the stock market doesn't recover from its highs. For example, in Japan, the markets haven't reached their highs since 1989. So what are your thoughts on that in terms of the U.S. stock market? Yeah, that's a, that's a perfectly fair question. And to be clear, my the book that I wrote was specifically studying the US stock market that I used as my uh, proxy. But the US stock market is not the only stock market that exists in the world. There are dozens uh, of them, and not all markets are created uh, equally. However, if you look at the stock market indices of most markets uh, around the world, the trend uh, almost everywhere is bottom left, upper right. Most stock markets do increase in value over time for the exact same reasons that the US stock market has increased in value uh, over time. 
Now, each market is unique, but by and large, the returns that I've seen from many of the stock markets around the world uh, are similar uh, to the US. Some of them have compounded at a lower rate uh, than the US. Some of them have compounded at a higher uh, rate uh, than the US. But the US stock market is the biggest, most liquid, most well-known uh, stock market in the world, even, uh, to, um, even to this day. But you just pointed out that there are some stock markets around the world that haven't done what the United States stock market uh, has done over the last you know, 100 uh, years. Japan is often cited as a stock market that has essentially been flat for something like uh, 30 years. And the Japanese stock market is is very unique um, in that uh, in the 1980s, like 30 year uh, 30 years ago, um, the the market valuations were extreme. I mean, they were like the same level of extremeness that they were in the U.S. with like the dot com craze. Like so many of these large, huge companies uh, were just very, very overvalued uh, at their time. And if you look at what the stock market has done, it's essentially went down uh, sharply and then has slowly kind of traded sideways uh, ever since. But so, if you were dollar cost averaging into the into the Japanese stock market over the last thirty uh, years, you're 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 up, right? If you're continually uh, buying, you're just not up the nearly the same degree that you would be buying in the U.S. Uh, over the last um, thirty years. But then you could also say, well, what about the Russian stock market, right? The Russian stock market is down enormously. And what are the odds of that coming back? Boy, is that a really hard question uh, to, to, to answer. Uh, however, when it comes to each individual market, each culture thinks uh, and treats investors in different ways, right? In, in Japan, um, investors are, are not the priority, right? The stock market is not the priority. They, they tend to go for maximizing employment. That's a very high priority for them. And if you look, even even though J Japanese stock market has been doing nothing over the last 30 years, it's still been a pretty good 30 years to be a Japanese citizen, right? The unemployment rate has been uh, low. The quality of life uh, has, has gone up. Um, but uh, that is something that that is a worry. So in in the book, when I talk about the growth drivers that have made the stock the U.S. stock market go up, all of those growth drivers are, are matter. And what you're betting on when you're buying into an index fund in the um, in the U.S. stock market is you're betting on those un fundamental growth drivers remaining in place for long periods of time. But those growth drivers are not um, are not present in every single market in all in, in all cases. Gotcha. And what are your thoughts on domestic versus international investing? When should investors consider investing in markets of different countries or even if they ever should? So the good thing, uh, the one thing that we're spoiled in the U.S. is if you buy into the S&P 500 uh, index fund, the, the 500, um, those are largely the 500 biggest and most profitable uh, businesses in the U.S. today. And many, many, many of those companies are very international themselves. I mean, take Apple uh, as, as an instance. Uh, Apple gets more than half of its revenue from markets outside uh, North uh, America, right? China is a major growth market. Uh, uh, for, for it. Europe is a major uh, growth market for it. The US is still a sizable amount of revenue and profits, but it's not the only source of revenue. You can say the same thing about Microsoft. You can say the same thing about Nike, about McDonald's, about um, many of the largest companies on, on earth. So just by the nature of buying into the US market, I, I don't know the exact figure, but I think it's somewhere around 
40%-ish or so of revenue and profits are derived from overseas. So even just by investing in the US markets, you're getting a sizable amount of international uh, exposure. Now, if you want to add on top of that extra exposure to international companies by buying, say, emerging market uh, ETFs or um, Chinese uh, ETFs or anything like that, there's no doubt that those markets are going to have offer more upside potential over long periods of time because their, their economies are, are emerging and their growth rates on a percentage basis uh, will be faster. So I see nothing wrong with adding extra exposure uh, if you want to. But even still, if you don't want to do that, if you just want to buy a broad-based index fund like the total stock market index fund or the S&P 500, you get, uh, you get international exposure just by that fact. And transitioning here into personal finance, considering 60% of millennials can't cover a $1,000 emergency expense, what are some of your tips on budgeting and saving? Yeah, millennials have been dealt a uh, rough hand. I mean, we, 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 and I, I am a millennial. I'm just barely a millennial, uh, <laughs> but I, I myself am a millennial. I mean, we, uh, when I graduated from uh, uh, college, interest rates were, you know, high. At least savings accounts uh, paid a certain number. Housing was expensive, but it wasn't like crazy expensive as it was today. College was more affordable when I was there, but it's not like crazy unaffordable uh, as it is. Today and um, just just after I graduated, I was lucky enough to get a job and my career going before the Great Recession uh, hit. I mean, I can't imagine graduating from college in 2008, or 2009, and trying to start your career into that kind of of, of job market. To say nothing about how uh, education, healthcare, and um, housing have become so expensive and so unaffordable. When you throw all those factors uh, together. Millennials' earnings are under a pressure. Meanwhile, costs are 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 have been uh, sky high. So it is very hard for a lot of people to save and and uh, invest money. If you're a millennial, then you are likely to be in the early part of your career. And the number one thing that you can do for yourself financially is to increase your human capital, aka make yourself more valuable in the marketplace, so that you can substantially increase your income uh, over time. Uh, I'm a big fan as anybody as watching your expenses, uh, cutting your expenses, removing frivolous costs from your life that you don't really value so that you can put money in into the market. But you can only do that to a certain uh, degree. There's a lower limit on the, on the amount of money that you can spend just to like live uh, your lifestyle, especially if you're living in an expensive city like New York or Boston or San Francisco or, uh, or Austin, Texas, uh, for, for example. So I still think budgeting should be the cornerstone of, of everybody's um, financial uh, life especially if you're just starting out. And if, if, if you're in that phase, just finding an extra 50, 100 or $200 uh, a month can really, uh, really impact your finances uh, over time. Uh, however, I've since, I've, I've since changed my mind a little bit about this, where the number one thing, I think the number one thing that people that are millennials can do is to really focus on improving their human capital, learning how to network, learning how to develop new skills, perhaps starting a side hustle in order to get their income going in the right direction. And to up to more recent times, considering consumer prices uh, rose 8.5%, which is the highest since 1981, what are some of the things that investors and people can do to help offset that uh, price increase? 
Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tricky thing, right? Get another blow that millennials are being dealt with. All of a sudden, we all have to deal for inflation uh, for the first time in in forty uh, years. Uh, if you think that inflation is going to remain high for a long period of time, or at least above its historic rate for a long period of time, which I think is, a, is entirely uh, possible, you have to start by asking yourself: Okay, what what kind of assets do well? In inflation, in inflationary periods, and what kind of assets do poorly in inflationary uh, periods? If you're going to be uh, investing uh, through an inflationary period, uh, the, the worst investment you can make is is cash, right? Cash is just money sitting in a bank account, and it's literally losing purchasing power uh, each each and every uh, year. So cash it tends to be a bad place. Bonds are also tend to be a bad performing asset because the return that you get on them is fixed, and unless you're unless you have a bond that's paying more than eight uh, percent annual um, return uh, right now, you're also losing money. You're locking up your money and losing purchasing power in real time. Uh, so what other choices do we get uh, beyond that? Well, you can invest in real estate. Real estate tends to do tends to hold up very well during periods of inflation. Uh, while rising interest rates are a headwind uh, to real estate, the replacement cost of real estate uh, tends to uh, combat that and help take it uh, away. So real estate tends to be a good asset class for, uh, for fighting inflation. Another one is uh, stocks in the US stock market. What is inflation? Inflation is rising prices. It's companies um, raising prices on consumers. Well, that naturally, when companies raise prices that naturally increases their revenue um, and that increases their their profit uh, over time there's plenty of volatility that can happen uh, in the short term but by and large uh, companies that can raise prices without losing customers have been historically a good inflation hedge the other one that I'll throw out there that uh, we don't know the answer to is crypto right crypto is often thrown out there as millennial uh, gold and uh, people think that it's going to be a great inflation hedge since the uh, the number of bitcoins that are out there are are capped um, we don't have a lot of historic data to look at that just because cryptocurrencies are so uh, new and the price of cryptocurrencies largely seems to be correlated with the price of high growth stocks, as opposed to just saying, oh, this is clearly a great um, uh, inflation hedge. So I would say the, the jury is still out uh, on that one. And then finally, there's things like uh, commodities. So you can buy gold, silver, wheat, um, and all those things tend to skyrocket in periods of inflation. However, the danger of investing in commodities is the cure for high prices is high prices, right? Uh, people buy alternatives, uh, assets when when prices are are high, right? So if oil is going up, uh, for example, the price of gas is going up, that increases the impetus for people to buy electric cars, for example, or more fuel efficient uh, vehicles, which puts a long-term damper on the demand uh, for it. So my personal favorite choices for investing in an inflationary period are stocks uh, and, and real estate, but there's numerous ways that you can approach it. Considering the all-time high inflation numbers and the Fed has printed over $6.8 trillion in the past year or two, and they're about to raise interest rates with, with houses and mortgage rates, do you think the stock market is headed into a recession in the next year or two? So this, 
it's very easy and it's very common for people to look at macroeconomic data and then to tell themselves a story about, therefore, this thing is going to happen next in fill in the blank market, very often to be uh, a stock market. And you could paint, you could look at the data that you just mentioned. I mean, there's a war going on, interest rates are going to be uh, rising, inflation is growing. You could say that um, you could even throw out there, well, the rise in, in cryptocurrencies does mean that. People like millennials are going to put their money into crypto instead of stocks. And you can take all that getter and say, oh, obviously, obviously, based on what we're seeing, that that's not good news for the stock market over the next three, six months, uh, year, or, or, or whatever time period that you're uh, looking at. I, I have... Um, historically uh, shied away from one making predictions about the stock market simply because I've tried to do that myself. I've tried to look at data and make inferences about what's going to happen next in the market. And it's remarkable how often I am wrong. The same thing is true of market experts, right? Um, the, the, the economy is so much bigger and so much more complex than you could possibly ever take into uh, account. Um, and you have to, you're, you're, you're bringing up some good points about whether well, there's some headwinds out there potentially to businesses, uh, to stocks, but you don't know one, uh, what's going to happen on a macroeconomic level, uh, two, how the government is going to respond to that, and then three, how investors are going to respond to the government responding to whatever macroeconomic thing uh, is out there. I mean, case in point for me, I thought that the stock market was overvalued in 2017. If I act, if I said, oh, stock market is overvalued, the, the next couple of years return is going to be bad, I'm going to take my money out of stocks and put it into cash, I would have missed out on like 100% gain over the next uh, four uh, years. Uh, conversely, if you were to ask me in March of 2020, when COVID was raging, when businesses were going out, when the unemployment rate skyrocketed, if you were to ask me what's going to happen next in the stock market, I would have given you the thumbs down. I would have said, this: the, the things are so bad economically uh, right now that the stock market is clearly going to continue going down. Look at how many businesses are just going under. Their, their revenue is going to, to zero. How wrong would I have been then, right? The stock market essentially went straight up uh, after uh, that. Uh, so for those reasons, I, I know that myself, I don't trust myself to make macroeconomic uh, calls at all. So I just accept if I'm going to invest in the market, the market may go down in the next three months, six months, year, two years, five years, or the market do, may do nothing over that time period, or the market may go uh, up. There's no way for me to accurately tell and make decisions based on what I think is going to happen. Uh, rather than do that, I focus on making my personal finances as conservative as I can. That affords me the uh, ability to keep my money invested in stocks, uh, the stock market, and I can just look at that and because my personal finances are so conservative, I can accept whatever volatility is about to come my, my way. If the stock market was going to decline 30% over the next five years and stay down, I, I can live with that. Like That would not feel good. It would feel awful. Uh, however, my day-to-day my -day life wouldn't be impacted uh, at all. So rather than making macroeconomic calls based on the, the data that you're seeing, I think it makes more sense to structure your life so that no matter what economic data comes your way, your lifestyle isn't impacted. I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially to make sure that you have a fund saved up. That way, if something happens wrong with your investments, you'll still be okay. You can still live your day-to-day -day life without being 
impacted by anything that's going on in the markets. And as you mentioned, it's almost impossible to predict the stock market. It's super hard to do, which is why it's uh, always better to stay with the long term. And to wrap it up here, what are your, some of your takeaways for the audience and where people can find more about you and your book? Yeah. So for, for me, I, the, uh, I wrote the book because there are 100 million Americans, 100 million Americans just in America that have money in the stock market in one way or the other. If you have an IRA, if you have a 401k, if you have a 403b, uh, if you have a Roth, if you have an employee stock purchase plan, like you are in some way betting on the stock market continuing to go up uh, for the rest of uh, your, your life. And if you look back historically, that has been a very, 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 very good bet. But if you're like me and you just want to know the why behind that happens, if you want to know, the, if you want to understand how that works, um, that that give, gave me tremendous comfort once I figured out how this thing uh, works. Because once I understood how it works, I understood, well, if the stock market falls or crashes again, that's one, normal. And two, the stock market will recover because I understand why the stock market recover, has recovered from all previous crashes uh, in each uh, case. So if that appeals to you, I would suggest giving my book, a, 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 check out my book, which is called Why the Stock Market uh, Goes Up. If you're interested in connecting with me, uh, the best way to do so is on Twitter. I'm at Brian Feraldi, and I also have a YouTube channel, which is same name, Brian Feraldi. I'll make sure to have those links posted in the episode description down below for anyone interested in checking it out. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Empit Podcast. And thank you, Brian, for taking the time to hop on the pod. It was a pleasure. Jameis, thanks so much for having me. Disclaimer, the podcast you just heard is not a recommendation to buy or sell any stocks, holdings, or securities. The podcast is also not meant to serve as the basis of any investment decision.